Okay, morning everybody. It's great to speak today and uh, great to have you here, especially if you're visiting. And I know that on a morning like today, there's going to be a load of us who are really familiar with church. This is normal to you. This doesn't kind of, this just seems kind of normal. For others of us, this is like really different. We've never been to anything like this. So you're very welcome. I want you to feel at home. Um, so you are very welcome. It's great to have you here. Now, on a morning like this morning when we're doing dedications, we often kind of think a bit about family and there's about a thousand different things you can speak on when it comes to family and that makes it pretty tricky for a preacher to know which way to go. We could talk, for example, about the idea that kids are a gift from God, which they are. They don't always feel like a gift at two in the morning, but they are a gift. And if you're a parent, it is a privilege. You are fortunate and God gives you these children to raise, to steward and to kind of release into the world as like responsible adults. We could talk about the challenge of parenting, the importance of time, the balance of boundaries and relationship, the danger of the screen. We all know the danger of the screens, right? Yeah, even the adults feel this one. We could talk about the different seasons that kids go from babies to toddlers. Anybody in the room have toddlers? Can we remove the photo just for a moment? We could talk about the different seasons. We could go babies, to toddlers, how many of us have toddlers in the room? One or two. Okay, this is for you. I found this the other day. This is rules, toddler rules. Okay, and if you've ever had kids, you will recognize this. This is how toddlers operate, okay? If it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If I like it, it is mine. If I can take it from you, it is mine. If I'm playing with something, all of the pieces are mine. If I think it it is mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If I had put it down, it's still mine. If you had it and then you put it down, it's now mine. If it looks like the one I have at home, it is mine. <laughs> That's so true. That's so, so true. But if it's broken, it's yours. So that's very true. We could have done you know, toddlers, toddlers to child, child to teenager, teenager to young adult, all those things. But I want to go a little different direction today. I'm not going to talk directly on parenting. I want to begin with a photo. You've already seen a little sneak preview. Let's stick the photo up. Now, how many of you know who these people are? Come on, stick your hand in the air. You can confess this together. It's fine. Yes. Who are they? The Waltons. That's right. The Waltons live in Catford, as you can tell, straight from southeast London. And they all, they all own denim dungarees. This is very important. Now, I also, confession, I did in my time have a pair of denim dungarees, which my wife, Sarah, thinks is hilarious, and she still tells a story about my denim dungarees. Now, The Waltons was a TV program. It was on TV when I was a kid about 10 years ago. That was a joke. Okay, and so they kind of showed, I don't know when they made this, probably in the 60s, I think, 60s, 70s. So it was on TV for like, for generations, kept rolling this, and it's set in the kind of between the First World and the Second World War in West Virginia, they're a big family with granddad and grand, you know, grandma and dad. Dad's the guy with the radio. Dad had a family business. All the kids work in the business. He, he ran a kind of a, a mill, a sawmill, and basically he deforested. He's, every episode he seems to be chopping down trees. So he seemed to deforest the entire of West Virginia. If there are no trees there, it's Mr. Walton's fault. Okay? And they were like this picture of a family. They industrious, big, vibrant. They had a few bumps and scrapes, but basically they were good. They went to church all together and dressed up nicely. I don't know what church it was, but it was like First Baptist Church or whatever it was. And you used to see them going to church. And it didn't matter what happened during the day. At the end of the day, when it came to saying goodnight, do you know what happened? 
Yes! Everybody would say goodnight to each other at the same time. Goodnight, Jim Bob. Goodnight, Mary Ellen. Goodnight, Dad. Goodnight, Mom. Goodnight, Granddad. Goodnight. It was weird. What was really, really weird, though, was they all went to bed at the same time. I thought that was so odd. What was going on in that family? It's really weird. You know, the six-year-old goes, I'm really tired. Well, we all go to bed. Let's all go. The Waltons were like the picture of a family, I think, that you kind of expect this family to be the kind of family you find in the Bible, don't you? Big, they get on, everything's good, you know. Actually, when you read the Bible, what you'll find is there are no references to the Waltons at all in the Bible. Or any other families like the Waltons. In fact, when you read the Bible and you look into the issue of family, what you will find is that pretty much every example is one problem one dysfunctional situation after another, after another. So Adam and Eve form the first family unit. We know what happens with them. Their sons, uh, one murders the other. The next, you go to Abraham and Sarah. That you know, Sarah can't have children. She gives her husband, you know, like a kind of a maidservant to sleep with, and she becomes like a, char- a surrogate mother, and that becomes really complicated. And, and Abraham is basically pretty passive in the whole affair. It seems to me, you get to uh, Isaac and Rebecca. They have twin boys, and they do what every parent should never do, and they pick favorites. So Isaac uh, picks Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob the most. And because they do that, they set their boys up for years of rivalry and struggle and problems between in their family. And then, surprise, surprise, Jacob has his own kids. Guess what he does, given what his parents have done? He picks favorites, and Joseph is his favorite, and Joseph, therefore, is like rivalry with his other brothers. His brothers hate him. His brothers try to kill him. His brothers, in the end, send him into slavery, and he's sent off to Egypt. And it goes on and on and on throughout the Bible. And you get into the New Testament, and because of the way the text works in the New Testament, you don't really get the same kind of like stories like that. But even in the New Testament, you see problems in families. So the best, one of the funniest stories I think is in the New Testament, where James and John, who are brothers, have obviously been at home cooking up a plan and talking about when we get to heaven, it's really important we get the best seats in heaven. They clearly have had no idea what Jesus has been talking about for years. And so they decide that they need to somehow convince Jesus to commit to giving them the right-hand seat and the left-hand seat next to him in heaven. Do you know this story? You can read about it. It's all in the Bible. God doesn't, like, keep it. It's all there. So they do what they should. They cook up the best plan, and the best plan they can come up with is, let's get our mum. And they get their mum to come and talk to Jesus and say, can my boys sit on the left and the right of you in heaven? And they don't even do it in private. They do it in public. All the other disciples are there. It's crazy. Every time you read about family in the Bible, you find breakdown, pain, dysfunction. And here's the thing. The story of the Bible is not an encyclopedia of perfect parents and perfect families. It's just not. It is the story of relentless grace of a God who loves us so much he pursues broken people and broken families to start to mend us and heal us. That's the story. Church is not a place where we gather with perfect parents and perfect families. The Bible is not the storyline of perfect families. It is the storyline of grace 
where God pursues people who are broken, who make broken families, and God pursues them with relentless grace in order to heal them and restore them and begin to mend them. If you are a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or care in any way about the next generation, you need relentless grace, do you not? You and I need that. We need help. We don't do this so well now. We need God to help us and to come after us and to keep coming for us. We know what a privilege parenting is. We know what a challenge it can be to be a parent. And we also know, do we not, how many families struggle to make it through unscathed, how much breakdown of family we see around us. I was just, as I was preparing this week, I was talking to somebody I know, um, I know a bit, we were walking down the road together, and as we're walking down the road, he begins to tell me the story. He goes, have you heard my news? I said, I don't know what news. He said, well, me and my wife, we've, we've separated. He starts to tell me about how many years they've been together. He tells me about how many counseling sessions they've been through. He's telling me this news, and as he's telling me, I'm looking at his kids as they are walking in front of us, and I'm thinking, we need relentless grace. Okay, we need grace. We need God to pursue us. We need him to change us, to help us form relationships and marriages and families which work. We need him because we don't do this so well on our own. And as I'm thinking about today and I'm thinking about this guy I know and his family and his kids All I can think about is a passage out of Psalm 68. And I've wrestled with God about it because I'm like thinking, give me a different passage. But I want to read you a little bit of Psalm 68. And this psalm, we're just going to take a little bit. This psalm is both really encouraging to us if we care about the next generation in whatever role we have. And really challenging all at the same time. So this is what Psalm 68 says, verses 4 to 6. says this, sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows. Is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows. God sets the lonely in family. It's encouraging and challenging all at the same time. It's an incredibly encouraging and comforting passage for a parent or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle because God says, amongst all the other things I could tell you about myself, I want you to know I am compassionate. That's who I am. When we introduce ourselves to people, we we say something about ourselves, don't we? Just turn to someone around you, turn to the person next to you. Literally, you've got 20 seconds, introduce yourself, and then I'm going to call you back, okay? And then try and be obedient and come back to me, okay? Off you go. Okay, you can come back. I knew this was dangerous. Okay. Now, when we introduce ourselves, I know some of you are sitting next to people you know already, so it's a bit weird. Hi. I'm, <laughs> you introduce yourself to your husband or wife. 
But when we introduce ourselves to people we don't know, we, we tend to say like our name and we tell them a little bit about ourselves. We summarize all the things we could say, right? There's loads of things you could say, but you just don't have the time. So you summarize it down to the most important things about you, don't you? You say, here's the leading thing about me you need to know. I am a dad or I work in this or whatever it is about it. You summarize it. Psalm 68, God summarizes who he is of all the things he could have said about himself. Of all the attributes and aspects and qualities that he could say and tell us about who he is, God says, I want you to know who I am. I am a father to the fatherless. That's who I am. I'm a defender of those who are defenseless. I'm a provider for those who can't provide for themselves. I'm a restorer of things that have been lost. I take people who are on their own, on the margins, who are alone, who are disenfranchised and forgotten and invisible, and I take them and I place them in families. That's who I am. Of all the things God could have said about himself, he says, I want you to know, I am compassion. I care. Now, if you're a parent in the room, I'll just talk to you for a moment. This is incredibly encouraging because God is saying, I am full of compassion. Jesus says the same things. If you read the stories Jesus tells in the New Testament again and again, he's trying to point out and teach us what God is like. He says, I'm going to tell you three stories in one moment. He says, God is like a, far, a shepherd who has 100 sheep, 99 of them are with him, but one has gone, wandered off, just gone its own way. He says, God is like one who pursues the one who's left. Sometimes that's our story, right? We leave, okay? We walk away from God, and God's like, I'm coming after you. And God said, I'm like that because I'm full of compassion for you. That's what I'm like. Oh, I'm like a woman who has 10 coins. I've got nine of them, but one of them I can't find. And he says, I'm like, she rips the house upside down looking for the one thing because it matters to her. Or he says, I'm like a father who has two sons. One stays at home. One goes, takes half the family inheritance, brings shame on the family and the village, leaves home, squanders everything, gets into all kinds of living, none of which satisfy him, by the way. And as he starts to come home, even though he should be rejected, even though actually the village want to kill him, the father says, I'm the one who runs to him. That's what I'm like. I want you to know that's who I am. I care about justice. I care about children, about teenagers. I care about widows and orphans. God says, I care about those who can't speak up for themselves or stand up for themselves or provide for themselves. You see, in a world that feels increasingly fragile politically, in fact, increasingly concerning politically, where we see this disconnect between popularity and yet someone's character, and all the uncertainty that breeds in the world, God says, I am compassion. That's who I am. I care. And if you're a parent in the room, or a grandparent, or an aunt and uncle, you need to know God cares about your kids. God is interested. They are not anonymous. They are not unknown He cares. It's difficult as a parent, I think, to get your head around the idea of someone caring about your children more than you care about them yourselves, right? Like before I was a parent, I have four children. I'm 
fortunate. I've got four great kids. I love them hugely. But before I was a parent, I probably had never experienced the emotion, and maybe it just says something about me, but whereby that I would willingly take the place of somebody else who was suffering. So if I had a friend of mine who was going through a hard time, I would, not, I would wish it wasn't happening to them. I, I don't want them to go through that difficult situation. But inside, part of me would be thinking, I'm glad it's not me. Right? That's just the selfish aspect of who I am. It's like, it's in our head somewhere, I'm glad it's not happening to me. But I wish it wasn't happening to them. When I became a parent, for the first time, I think I experienced the emotion whereby my kids would go through a tough time at school or something would happen or someone would be sick or they'd be in hospital. And for the first time, I would think I would rather it was me. You had that experience if you're a parent? You think, I, I want to take their place. I, I don't want them to feel that or experience that. I, I'd rather absorb that pain on their behalf. I'd rather it was me in their place. I don't want them to experience it. That's what God is like. See, God looks at us and looks at us in all our pain and all our challenge and all our difficulty and all the things we mess up. And sometimes we walk through the consequences of it as painful, the breakdown or whatever. And God looks at us and goes, I'd rather it was me. That's, that is what the Christmas story is about, isn't it? As we celebrate Jesus coming, Jesus comes because God looks at us and goes, I'd rather it was me than you. That's why Jesus is born as a baby, helpless. That's why he's hunted from the word go. That's why their family become refugees. That's why he grows up to be hated. That's why he dies a criminal's death because God says, I will take the place of all the marginalized, all the alone, all the people on the edge of society. I will take the pain of everybody because I'd rather it was me than you. That's what he does. So if you're a parent here today, you can be encouraged. God says to you, I care about you and I care about your children. Because there'll be moments as a parent, you're just saying, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know what's going to happen to this teenager. I don't know which way they're going to go. I don't know what decisions and choices they're going to make when they're not in my care. I don't know. And God says, I care about your kids. So it's encouraging and should comfort us and help us. But this passage is also incredibly challenging to us if you read it right. Because not only does God care about the ones who are in family, and it's great today, wasn't it, to celebrate family and to pray for parents, and it's great. And if you're here and you're a lone parent, a single parent, you have our great respect, and we want to support you. But it's great to celebrate it together and think about it. But if you read Psalm 68 right, what you'll see is God says, I care also fiercely for those who are not in family, for those who don't have a mum for those who don't have a dad, who don't have grandparents, who are not in the circle, who are on the edges of the circle. God cares deeply about people that often we do not love. In like, in, I think in every society there are always people who are marginalized. People that effectively, for whatever reason, don't sit in the mainstream of what's happening. In some senses, are disqualified. Often because of reasons, things they have no control over themselves. 
and they sit on the edges of society and they become invisible to us. Jesus tells a story in Luke 10. It's probably, I think, maybe the most famous story he tells. One of them, right up there. It's become known as the Good Samaritan. Whether you're used to church or not, pretty much everybody knows this story. It's so familiar that sometimes we don't even get the story because we just kind of know it. But in the story, Jesus talks about a man who's traveling, a Jewish man, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the journey, he's attacked. He gets, he gets beaten up. He's robbed. They take his stuff. They strip him of all his clothes. In other words, he loses all his dignity. They beat him so badly that he's bleeding everywhere. He, they basically leave him for dead on the side of the road. And that's his situation. He's on the edge of the road. And Jesus says, three people come along that road. First of all, a priest comes. The priest comes, sees the man, passes onto the other side of the road and keeps going. Then a Levite comes. They were often the guys in charge of like worship or involved in that kind of stuff, originally in the temple or the synagogue. Sees the man, passes, decides to distance himself and keeps going. Now, Jesus doesn't say that either of those people were bad. He, he doesn't, we tend to kind of project it onto the story. They must be bad people. We don't know they were bad people. They may have been on their way to do all sorts of good things, but for whatever reason, they don't see this person on the edge of the road as part of their sphere of care. It's, it, it, they're not their responsibilities. In a sense, this person is not on their agenda when it comes to who they are responsible for. They're like, they see them, but they don't really see them. They're like, effectively, they're invisible, right? That's how it works. And then Jesus says a third man comes along. And the third man is a Samaritan man. Now, Jesus picks these characters very intentionally. Okay? Samaritans were like the people that the Jews hated. They were like the enemies. They were the people they were most likely concerned that they would be beaten up by. They would want to avoid. They didn't want to go down those roads with them. They didn't want to go anywhere near them. And yet Jesus picks the Samaritan as a character on purpose. And the Samaritan man comes along and he stops. He stops. You see, I think it's completely normal and natural for us when we think of family, when we think of people we care for, to think of the ones that God has given directly to us to care for. We think of our kids, we think of our extended family, we think of our close friends. That's completely normal. And when it comes to parenting, we want to take it seriously. We want to learn and do it well and raise our kids right. Yes, that's what we want to do. It's completely normal. But every so often, God will bring across your path a person or a people or a section of society, people who were not born into your family, people that are not even from your background. They don't look like you. People that maybe, in fact, you have some history with in terms of their people. Because that's what's happening in this story. They've got history, the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet he stops. And every so often God will bring people across your path, across your concern or your awareness. They may not look anything like you, and yet God whispers to you, will you stop? You need to pay attention God is redefining in those moments who 
you and I are responsible for? Who are we responsible for? He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. He sets the lonely in families. Who are we responsible for? Let's talk about one segment of our society that we all know about. There are lots of different things and different causes and different areas we should be concerned about as well. I'm going to talk about one thing, okay? We live in a world, do we not, where fathers are missing. In 2013, so this is three years old, so this report possibly is even worse than this now, the Centre for Social Justice issued a report called Fractured Families and Why Stability Matters. And in that report, they said almost a million kids live in a family where they have no contact at all with their fathers. In fact, they have absolutely almost no contact with any male role models because 80% of all schools, junior schools, have, well, three male teachers or workers at the most, and 25% of all kind of junior primary schools have no male workers at all. It is what the Centre for Social Justice calls a men desert. So it's great in here today to gather and celebrate and give thanks, okay? That is what we should do. It is appropriate. But we live in a community where there is a men desert. It is all around us. For some of us, it is our story. It's painful for us. We see it on the streets. We see it in the schools. And the question is, Will we stop? Will we pay attention? Will it become our concern and our responsibility? God says, like, this is who I am. I'm a father to the fatherless. And if that's God who says, this is who I am, then surely that should be who we aim to be. Sometimes we think, well, I want to stop I see the social concerns, I see the problems, but I don't really know how to engage. I'm not sure what to do. I'd like to, and that's our hurdle, and so therefore we kind of get stuck. We think, oh, I don't know what to do. I can't engage with that. I understand that question. That is a huge issue for some of us. I read a story recently about a guy called Tony Hall, who was a congressman who visited Calcutta when Mother Teresa was there, and he visited her on a number of occasions, and one of his conversations with her got recorded, and they basically... The conversation was basically about, like, the extent of the issue. And he said to her, like, Mother Teresa, like, your work is amazing, but it's basically just like a drop in the bucket. When you see the need of Calcutta and you see the need of India, it's like, it's, it, it doesn't make a dent. And she said, it's not even a, du- a drop in the bucket. It's like a drop in the ocean. But she said, if we don't do this, it is one drop less than that should be. Like we've got to do something so she does what's before. And so he said, well, what do I do? I don't know how to engage. I don't know how to make a difference. What do I do? And then she said to him this, just do and care for who is in front of you. Will you stop? Who has God put in front of you 
that is not in your normal circle of responsibility. Not born into your family, maybe doesn't look like you, maybe you don't even feel comfortable around, but you know God has brought these people across your path or is stirring something in you right now. Will you stop? See, I don't know what God calls us, you two, uniquely to do. I don't know. Different ones of us, God will put different calls on our lives. If you're a Christian here, God has called you to do certain things and it will be unique to you, different to me. But I do know this, okay? I do know that your resources you have, the relationships you have, the home you have, for those of you who have families, the family you have, the gifts you have and the talents you have, God has not given them to you just for you. There are people around you that God wants to whisper to you about. That God wants you to extend care to. To fill a level of responsibility for. People for whom he wants you to stop for. I know some of you already feel this really strongly. I, I know people in our church, in this season, right now, they are adopting or fostering kids. They're literally bringing children into their family right now. We want to support you and encourage you as you do that. I know there's others of you who feel strongly called to work with teenagers who are marginalized, kids who haven't made it through the school system. I know it's like on your heart, isn't it? I know some of you, and God's put it on your heart. And when you look at them, you don't see them as like angry perpetrators of trouble. You see them as victims, innocent victims. It's like God has changed your view. They're not invisible to you. They're very visible to you. When you see them, you see them differently to how the world sees them. And that's like a God thing. Some of you, your teachers or maybe teaching assistants. As of you work in care homes with people that everybody else has forgotten are even still alive. And God has called you to it. I felt as I prepared, I wanted to say, for those of you who are teachers, some of you, it's like, I know. I'm married to somebody who's taught. I, I know a little bit about teaching. I know how like, just the sheer bureaucracy and all the paperwork now has made a whole bunch of you think, I just want to give up. And I feel like God wants to remind you why you got involved with this in the first place. He wants to encourage you. But wherever you are, whatever work you do, or maybe you don't have a job right now, but whatever situation in life you're in, you'll find God brings people into contact with you. And God wants to whisper to you, will you stop? God wants to make invisible people visible to you. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of widows. He places the lonely in families. Let's pray together.